Hi guys, welcome to my show, My Steps to Sobriety. This is for our YouTube channel as well as for our new podcast. So check it all out if you're on one platform or the other. Today, I am honored and humbled to have Victoria English Martin with me. She is an eternal student of life and is a woman that impressed me and, and stopped me in my tracks when I learned about her story. And a story that I thought would fit very well into our discussions here and into our show, because it is all about learning how to deal with the obstacles of life, how to deal with the storms that are brewing and where we can't do anything but roll with the punches. And some of us still choose to roll, well, <laughs> literally roll with the bottles and uh, choose chemical agents to, to get us through something or at least numb the pain so that we don't feel it too much. Whilst others like Victoria and myself have chosen to find different ways. And I'm dead excited to chat with Victoria today and find out what we can learn from her. So Victoria, thank you so much for coming on my show today. I'm honored. Thank you for that beautiful introduction and for having me on your show. I'm honored to be here, humbled and grateful to hopefully be of service to others. Mm. Oh, and you will, no doubt. And I would like to shout out to you. Actually, we had planned this, in, uh, this uh, interview in two and a half hours' time, and then the weather is in your mountains. I uh, decided not to play a game, and we rather quickly improvised <laughs> and brought the interview forward. Yes. So well done to you. Thank you very much for, for, for making it all happen. And that's the reason that we've got Victoria nicely relaxed in her bed there uh, up mm -hmm. in the mountains. <laughs> Rather yes, than in a bit exactly. more in, in a different setting that you maybe uh, would have expected <laughs> for a show. So that's all cool. <laughs> it's all good. I don't I don't have a professional workspace set up here intentionally because it is our, our little retreat after all the months in quarantine. So I, I don't have a, a, a nice backdrop or anything, but <laughs> my pillow is quite fine. <laughs> I think so too. And I think the reality is that's, that's life. And you have to roll with the punches and you have to improvise and you have to, to, to do all the right things. And Absolutely. that's exactly what we're doing here. So yes. welcome to Victoria, who is actually a human being. She is not a robot with a perfect setup. She's not a perfect mask that that we like to keep in front of our face. She's actually an honest down-to-earth girl who has an amazing story. Right, Victoria. I would love to know, when you were really little, when you were a little girl, what did you want to be when you grow up? That's a, that's a nice question. Well, I was born in 1970, which makes me 49 now. And back then, women did not have a ton of choices or dreams of what they could become. So like many girls, I wanted to be a mommy when I grew up and also a ballerina. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm not kidding. So, um, and then as I grew a bit older, uh, I had quite an interest in writing as, as a student. And so I briefly considered becoming an English major, but I also had a passion for science. So I ended up going into studying uh, dietetics, nutrition in college. I finished college and decided that I did not want to work in a hospital, which is about all you could do with a with a dietetics degree back then. So I, but I had always, like I said, with my dream of being a dancer, I had always loved movement and exercise physiology, anatomy, anything involving movement in the body and the systems of the body. So I went into teaching movement. I teach Pilates and uh, which is a methodology of exercise 
Um, so I've done that for many, many years. I do nutritional consulting, helping people change their lifestyle, their eating habits, their relationships with food. Um, so, and I am also a mother of four. So the mommy part came true and the ballerina part, not so much. Uh, but I do work in the field of movement and with the body. So that is very rewarding for me. <laughs> do you still like to dance? I do. I do. I, uh, I get mixed reviews from my kids now, but uh, I don't care. <laughs> I, I do. I love, I love to be present in my body. <laughs> and and just any kind of movement to me, like uh, Joseph Pilates, the inventor of the father of Pilates, which was called contrology in the beginning. There's no bad movement. There is only movement done badly. So we, uh, I just, I just like to move. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. When I was younger, I loved the rock and roll. I loved uh, ballroom dancing. So I certainly, and I did a bit of freestyle. So I know what you mean oh. that uh, uh, to to be out there and move is a is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yes. So that was you when you were when you were younger. You had your dreams, and you then were saying you were getting into college and did uh, initially sort of thinking about the, the writing, but you ended up dietitian. So all a very healthy and beautiful thing. Where did the alcohol come in? When did you well, first drink? The alcohol came in um, when I was a child. I grew up in an alcoholic home, uh, and there was quite a bit of dysfunction. When, and so I didn't know what to call it. I just knew that as I got older, uh, as many children of alcoholics can attest. Uh, I just knew that when I would walk in the house, I felt like I sort of had to do this to check the, the, the temperature and the, and the way the air, the energy was flowing in the home. And I would innately know if it was a good day or a bad day. So I didn't know until I was older that alcohol was at the root of, of much of the, the distress in my home. Thankfully, um, when I was about, 13 or 14 years old, my father stopped drinking, stopped smoking, stopped all of his unhealthy habits wow. and, and decided to take up exercise. He is now 82 years old and has done multiple, uh, countless marathons, triathlons, uh, Ironman competitions, and is a successful businessman and quite the inspiration. Uh, I think for... I need to get him onto the show as well. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's a wonderful a wonderful human being. So, oh, wow. my first exposure to alcohol was was an unhealthy one, but I also had the gift, and I tell my father the greatest gift he ever gave me was his own recovery to see him overcome his his battles. Um, I did have a strong uh, leaning on on my father's side of the family. Big. Uh, German Irish Catholic family to um, alcohol abuse on the male side, but I wasn't aware of any on the female side. I think I had my first drink when I was about 14, you know, the typical taking some strange combination of liquor from my parents' cabinet and mixing it in together into some wretched <laughs> syrupy combination probably probably mixed it with tang or kool-aid um <laughs> and i didn't really like it uh and from then on i drank a little bit here and there in high school i i i drank i got drunk a few times mm, college i went to here in america american football i went to a big university where there was we were one of the top football teams in the country. I joined uh, a social club called a sorority here. And there was many of the events were alcohol centered. I did not stand out from my peers at that time as drinking any more unusually 
in, in a different way than and my peers uh, but certainly there was a lot of a lot of ruckus and nonsense um well, that was but the 80s, 90s, wasn't it? Was it was the 80s and 90s. And absolutely, alcohol was part and parcel. That it is, really was. You go away and wherever you go, there will be alcohol. Yes. That was yes. So in Germany and it was, I assume exactly the same with you. Yes. So, so a typical college environment, but, um, but I didn't, I didn't really suffer any, any consequences other than some vicious hangovers. Uh, then I got out of college and was extremely health oriented and about a year and a half after college I, I married my first husband my college sweetheart who was not a heavy drinker we were out of the college scene and I I can count on one hand the, the times that I overindulged from the time I was about 21 when I graduated until 29 when my mother died suddenly. Um, so, so in my mind, I actually remember thinking, wow, I, I dodged that bullet. I didn't get, I didn't get whatever it is on that side of the family. Um, I don't have to worry about that. So it was quite a surprise to me when after the sudden and traumatic death of my mother, which goes back to the relationship I had with her when she was alive, I, I was a runner at the time and I started to not be able to catch my breath. I would run one mile and, you know, just be bent over trying to catch my breath. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't sleep. And slowly but surely started opening that bottle of wine uh, to relax and it turned into a habit. And but it did help me catch my breath. It did its job. So that's how it all started. That's how the, the slippery slope of becoming addicted to alcohol started for me. It started later in life and uh, was a very, very slow descent and caught me off guard, to be quite honest with you. How intriguing. How intriguing. You clearly have got some genes there that were handed down from daddy's side of the family. Mm -hmm. And we know in medicine that, or in, in, in addiction theory that most youngsters who are predisposed to alcohol, they start their journey between 18 and 24. And therefore, there are actually some voices out there who say that the legal drinking age should be 25, uh, which sounds bizarre, but there is actually some damn good reason for that. Because yes. if you start drinking yes. after that, it is far less likely that you become an alcoholic, that you become dependent and then addicted to your to, to alcohol or other drugs. But here we go. It, is, it just shows that you are the exception to the rule and that alcohol indeed initially will be a friend because it helps you to deal with something that is happening in your life. That might be your anxiety, your shyness, that might be in this case, grief, trauma, mm -hmm. and alcohol can be very good in that. The problem is it's a friend that you invite who then tends to stay. And stay overstays its welcome. Isn't it? Isn't it? Mm -hmm. There was an Arabic saying, what do have friends and fish in common? Well, after three days in your house, they start to stink. So there you go. Um, so, yeah, your friend alcohol, unfortunately, uh, is not such a great friend. So the grief of you, uh, over the death of your mom, I'm very sorry to hear that. Uh, how did you try to deal with that? Did you, so the alcohol was helping you, became the crutch. Were there other ways that you tried to address your feelings, your emotions at the time? Yes, uh, I, had a, I had a complicated relationship with my mother. She had untreated mental illness. I don't know 
exactly what it was because they didn't have names for everything back then and there were not the resources available to her. So unfortunately she suffered with immense depression and it was a difficult relationship in that she, um, she would tell me things like, uh, well, you're my last chance at happiness. And uh, if I made a mistake or something, she'd say, well, there goes my chance at ever being happy because you, you did this or you did that. So I carried an enormous amount of pressure through my life to, to fix her, to make her okay. And when she died of a brain aneurysm and I spent a week up there with her, um, her mother who was still, who was alive at the time and was a, just a, a wicked soul. <laughs> um, there was a, the reading of, of my mother's will and I won't go into details, but my, my grandmother looked at me across the table and said, well, now you know what she really thought of you. And that it's interesting because not everyone can pinpoint the moment when it happened for them, but that was the moment it happened for me. I, um, I got extremely drunk on the plane ride home from after she died and told my husband at the time that I had broken something in me had broken. Um, my, my fears of what my mother thought about me were just confirmed and now she's dead. So besides self-medicating, beginning the, the slippery slope of self-medicating with alcohol, I had three young children at the time. They were one, two, and four. And so I, I loved them. I overloved them. I was so determined that they would never feel unloved or feel like they had failed me that it definitely compromised my ability to be an authoritative figure. And that played out in some unfortunate ways as they hit their beautiful teenage years and such, because, um, oh, you can I, imagine, just oh. I just never wanted them to feel unloved. Oh. So, uh, I had very blurred boundaries with them and that did not serve me or them. Uh, so I think, I think that's, I've never been asked that question before, but it's, it's a very thought provoking one because I definitely, uh, aside from, from beginning the self-medicating, I also started the, the process of, of just making sure that my children never felt unloved and making sure that, uh, that they never felt the way I felt from my mother. It's spooky for me to listen to you because I have had a virtually identical experience. I could have just altered your voice a little bit and pretended it is said by me. That would be exactly right. There was no reading of the will, but I learned about the real faults of my mother uh, when we went to church for her funeral and people took me aside and told me what she really had said about me. Back. So identical, identical, and incredibly, incredibly painful. Please. Incredibly painful. Isn't it? And it is That's crazy. Yeah. The breaking. I, I, I realized that I, I remember the second I stood there. You, as if someone would have slapped me in the face. I know. Yes. That's the reason. So, so dear viewers, when my mind suddenly went blank when when Victoria was recounting that, that was because I was back on, in that church on that day. Mm. So, my goodness. And then, wow, you. I mean, that is a deep blow, and no surprise that that the alcohol and you had a steady relationship thereafter. How, yes. did you, how did your husband feel about that? Uh, well, my husband at the time, uh, we, like I said, we had three children in a very short amount of time. And I was a very capable mother. I taught Pilates at, at the time I was 
just teaching part-time because the children were so little and he was never much of a drinker. Um, when I came home from the cab ride, because he had flown back to, to, we lived in Miami at the time, he had flown back to Florida to care for the children while I tied, finished things up with my mother. So I flew home alone. And when I came home, he said to me, how are you? And of course he was startled to see me a, an absolute drunk mess. Um, because I, he wasn't accustomed to seeing that. And he was like, Oh, he said, how are you? And I said, I think I'm broken. I remember that very clearly saying, I think I'm broken. And he, over the following months, I was seeking a lot of validation from him. And I would say things to him like, um, you have to promise me you'll never make me feel the way my mom made me feel. And he'd say, well, I'll try not to. And for me, that, that wasn't enough. I needed some sort of absolute. And I don't think he had the emotional bandwidth to understand what I was going through. So our marriage ended. My mom died in 99 and my marriage to him ended in 2002. So, and we both had a role in that. And part of mine, I think, was waiting for the other shoe to drop and expecting him to let me down and almost forcing his hand in some ways because I became completely invested in my children and ensuring that they would feel okay, that they would be okay. Um, and I, you know, he, I just, I figured I, I see this now. I obviously couldn't see this at the time, but I, I, I remember thinking he, he's going to screw me over at some point. I just know it. I just know it. I just know it. Of course, I didn't say this out loud. I didn't understand it at the time. He did notice that I was drinking more and it concerned him, but you know, he's just sort of like, Hmm, you're really using alcohol quite a bit. I said, yeah, I am. So I decided I would stop using alcohol for that purpose and was successful um, until the divorce happened, <laughs> until that other shoe dropped. And from there it was, um, again, it was pretty slow for me, but it was at that point I was beginning to lose my choice in my, my decision to drink or not to self-medicate with alcohol or not self-medicate. It was becoming a habit. My brain was becoming conditioned to deal with stress and anxiety with that, with that substance. So, uh, you know, on the outside, I, I, I looked okay. I was, I started a Pilates business. I was raising my children, uh, but it was definitely becoming more and more of an issue. And this is mid 2000. So again, uh, the recovery, the, there was no social media. There were not any visible faces of recovery, what recovery looked like, what an alcohol dependent woman could look like. So it never entered my mind that I could actually have a serious problem with it. I just thought I'm using this to numb out. So that's kind of how things toddled along for several years. And, and for the younger listeners and the younger viewers out there, let me put some spin on it uh, or some, some explanation behind that. Uh, Victoria and I were coming from a time when the heroes or heroines in our films were all enjoying a glass of wine and mm -hmm. or a beer and it was normal to drink and there is this famous line from from a Schwarzenegger film when he plays a Russian cop who investigates in New York and the New York detective asks him hey look what do you do in Russia when when you deal with a hard story or something that really gets close to you he says vodka and that just typifies the 80s the 90s and the way oh, that yes. we have been brought up you know stiff up a lip and drink down and then um, tomorrow's a new day and you get on with your life absolutely years. yeah and it's yes. and and indeed there was no social media so therefore i had shit role models and I took my role models from the films and I thought, oh, okay, that's how you're supposed to be. That's how I'm going to be. 
And so unfortunately, there is, it's hard for people nowadays to realize, but there's very much a background to our stories where we maybe did not have the choices because we didn't see the choice. We didn't see that there were other things out there. And to, be, to admit that you had a problem, even if you realized that you actually did, which many of us did not, mm-hmm. but even if you realized that to admit it was, was a failure, you're a failure. You, you can't. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and to your point about, about role models, there were also no, no role models of what recovery could look like, of what going substance-free could look like. Yeah. So in my mind, you know, an alcoholic mother was something you would see in some movie where the mother, you know, couldn't take care of her children, but, you know, mommy dearest, you know, the the seven-year-old making martinis, (laughs) (laughs) nothing like those people, you know, I'm up at 6am training clients and making dinners and everyone's getting their homework done and gosh, no, I'm nothing like, I am not mommy dearest. So, Again, um, um, it's it's a wonderful thing, and that's part of my hope is that I can be a face of of recovery. That yes, it it did this to me, and and yes, you it doesn't have to stay that way, and you can look like this and <laughs> be battling something very dark inside of you and come out on the other side. So yes, uh, it was a definitely a different time, isn't it? Isn't it? So you were at a time and. Things get get darker. Um, you have got all this mask up. You're out there, uh, but probably halfway of the afternoon Pilates class, you were probably already thinking about, oh, I need to to go by at a bottle shop, get some bottles to come home. Um, mm-hmm. And were there then any defining moments where you thought enough is enough? Was that the time then where where something happened? Uh, How did your story continue at that stage? So, yes, during the time when I was, I was, I was not yet remarried. um, I do remember thinking, I do remember checking the, the milliliters on the bottles of wine because I thought, am I being scammed here? Because these bottles seem to be getting smaller (laughs) yep (laughs) so i do remember thinking you know like they do with boxes of cereal or something they're like they're making those things smaller no same 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 750 milliliters um and and then something happened um a revolutionary product arose in my in my local supermarket which was boxed wine oh and that made it a lot harder to measure. So I do remember, I remember things like that. And then I, I started to remember that, you know, I would, I would always make sure that I had extra gum or breath mints before I would train a client because I, I could feel the wine on me from the night before. Um, and then I started the slow promises of, you know, only on the weekends and only two glasses only only and and all of the things that we do as we make a feeble attempt to control this thing uh i remarried in 2007 um yeah hey that's our job that's our job to forget okay right (laughs) you're You're supposed to know every single second of it (laughs) 2007 um and by that point my drinking had become it was becoming more of an issue i was i was hanging out with friends other moms of course but moms who like to drink a lot and um but then i I remarried uh and got pregnant only about a month after we got married so here I was pregnant with my fourth child and trying to integrate a family with a man who had no children. Uh, my children were not happy about having to share me. They were young teens and preteens at the time. So it was a very stressful time. Uh, I, I, 
I never had trouble. Well, I wasn't an alcoholic before I had my first three children, but I didn't, it, I didn't have trouble not drinking during the pregnancy, which further confirmed that I didn't have a problem. Um, and I nursed my daughter and then was staying home full time, was not working anymore, uh, wasn't teaching Pilates. So I became the center of the, I, I again, like I did with my mother, if I can just fix you, if I can make everything, if I can make everybody else okay, if I can somehow make you okay, then I'll be okay. And I fell very deeply into that pattern of trying so hard to make this, this, this blended family work, trying so hard to, to just make everybody okay. And once I had stopped nursing, I started picking up the wine again. Um, and so I was here, I was, I was about 37 at this time and it quickly went back to my old drinking habits uh, of popping a bottle of wine pretty much every night while I was making dinner. You know, I thought, oh, I'm not nursing anymore. I'm back to running. I'm, you know, just what I do. Um, now having children, I don't know what it's like over there, but having had children in the nineties, there was not the mommy, the, the, the mommy wine culture was not in full force yet in the nineties. Flash forward, I have a daughter in 2008. All the moms are drinking. Suddenly, motherhood is impossible without drinking. So I thought, well, shoot, look at this crowd of moms. Like, I blend right in with this group. They're all drinking at lunchtime, too. They're all drinking at soccer practice. They're all drinking. So there was a lot of validation, which I sought. I started to, I started to dig deeper and deeper to have to find it. <laughs> but comparing myself to others and saying, I'm not that bad. Um, again, like a lot of us, you know, at 3 a.m. Googling, taking the quizzes. Are you an alcoholic? Do you have a problem with alcohol? You know, checking more boxes than I did six months ago. Oh no. <laughs> All of those things. Um, and that's when I slowly started to investigate recovery and AA and started to seek out a little more information about what the, what the hell was happening to me because I was, I was, I realized that I was, I had a problem. I had a problem and my kids knew it and I knew it and it didn't seem to be getting better on my own. Was there any particular day or night or moment that stands out for you where you felt, okay, enough is enough. Or was it just an accumulation of experiences and you gently finding yourself further and further and further out mm -hmm. of your comfort zone that you think, Christ, that is, you know, there's, there's only so many bottles that fit in one recycling bin. When you look yes. around to the other guys, <laughs> as it takes some of yours and put that into their bins so it doesn't look so, so amazing. No, don't yeah. touch me, you bloody recycling man, man. <laughs> I'm just doing what's right for the environment. That's don't right. That's right. Bottles. Uh, there were a couple of moments. That's a good question. There, there were, there were two moments that stand out to me. And the first was, uh, my youngest daughter and I were about to go on a run. I had her, I was preparing her running stroller and everything. And I walked past our cabinet, which held the liquor. For the first time, it was about 10 a.m., I thought, man, it would feel good to have a drink because I was living in a constant state of anxiety and discomfort with being a, a mother again and, and not working and trying to integrate this family. I was very, very stressed. And I remember looking and thinking, man, it would feel good. And then thinking, oh my that's scary. It's 10 a.m. Hmm. And the other time, uh, I had a very, very dear friend who, I'm on a podcast. 
and another time was um, I challenged myself. I it was a beautiful Sunday spring afternoon, and I said I will buy one bottle of wine. Um, and if I go to buy a second bottle of wine, because of course by this time I was not keeping a lot of alcohol in the house, well, you know. Um, and if I go to buy a second bottle of wine, then I promise I will pick up my phone tomorrow and call this very dear friend of mine and tell him what's going on. He was a minister who was in, in recovery from drinking. So naturally, I bought that second bottle of wine. But I did follow through on my commitment the next morning. I called him and I said, I have to come into your office because if I don't, I will chicken out. If I don't do it today, he said, come in. And he um, got me in contact with a woman and we started going to meetings. And that was the beginning of my journey through AA. Uh, I have enough white chips to build a playhouse for my daughter. Um, <laughs> For those of you who don't know the, 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 um, <laughs> the AA system, you get chips for every uh, milestone you reach. And initially that is a week, then a month, then mm -hmm. I can't remember how it goes, but it is but basically you get, you get chips. Now, if you yes. get the same chip again and again, that means that you actually had a little relapse. And stuff of yes. And the so, white chip is, so, the white chip symbolizes surrender. <laughs> so they give you that, that chip and you're supposed to carry that white chip. Uh -huh. And so I picked up a lot of those white chips. Um, so, yeah, so I, I had extended periods of sobriety. Uh, I call it alcohol free, but not free from alcohol. Um, and I had terrible periods of time where I would go back to drinking and every time I'd go back it got worse and worse and the consequences became bigger and bigger um so it took a long time for me to to surrender um and I had a I had a decent amount of sobriety uh under my belt in 2018 when I discovered the the lump in my breast, which was diagnosed as breast cancer. And that ties into my journey with alcohol as well. When you say that ties in with that, you probably refer to the fact that a number of cancers are actually linked to alcohol. That's what many people don't want to hear and right. know about. I've written, I've written a, a chapter on that in, in my steps to sobriety in my book. Mm -hmm. There's actually where I go into the, the cancer risk and then explain why these things mm -hmm. do happen. Um, do you, do, are you happy to share a little bit about that journey? Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. So um, it turns out that, uh, so at this point I was, I was very healthy. I thought um, I had gone through a lot of recent stress with um, some situations with my now young adult children uh, just before my diagnosis. Uh, my son got involved with drugs around 15 years old and was in and out of recovery. And uh, just before my diagnosis, he, he, had, he had a very serious relapse. Uh, he's now been sober for over two and a half years. It's a, he has a beautiful story, but it was very stressful. Um, my second daughter had been a victim of sexual assault at college and had not gotten justice through the court system. So I was mentally frazzled and unwell. And I believe that definitely weakened my immune system. I kept getting bugs. Um, so anyway, I found this lump in my breast and it turns out that I had a breast cancer called triple negative breast cancer. So far, they do not find a direct link between alcohol and this type of breast cancer. However, 
<laughs> I do not minimize the role that alcohol may or may not have played in my diagnosis. Um, I do carry the BRCA1 mutation. I have no family history of breast cancer in my family, but I do carry the BRCA1 mutation. So as my oncologist explained to me, I was born with a 75 to 80% chance of getting breast cancer. So I don't know how much alcohol contributed to my diagnosis, but I certainly know it didn't help. Um, when I was diagnosed, I went to the doctor right away. They, they knew it was cancer as soon as they looked at it with the ultrasound. And um, I remember thinking, okay, I'm in for the fight of my life. I had a very aggressive type, tri triple negative is, is extremely aggressive, and it had started to travel up through my lymph nodes, which in layman's terms means it was taking a, a train ride up, and the next stop would have been going into my bones or organs. So I consider myself very lucky that I did catch it when I did, but uh, triple negative is not the kind of cancer where you can take any shortcuts. I had a very, very long, arduous treatment, many surgeries, some hospitalizations, one for sepsis, um, you know, uh, just, just devastatingly difficult to get through. And it was funny because as people with addiction issues think, they somehow, they sometimes think that there's a, there's a magical moment where the, the thought of using that substance will never enter your mind again. And I thought that when I was going through cancer, I didn't drink during cancer, but I thought, gosh, well, I'm fighting for my life. I'll never want to drink again. The thought will never enter my mind. So you can imagine my surprise <laughs> when after treatment finished, and again, having been the type of person who has always put a lot of expectations on myself and helping others, um, when I didn't feel great and wasn't bouncing back as well as I thought, and the trauma of what I had just gone through began to hit me, that I had lost my hair, my breasts, my reproductive organs, my vitality. I'd always been athletic. Um, my spirit felt very broken. I fell into a very deep depression. <clears throat> and I did have a brief period of, of drinking after cancer. And uh, talk about self-loathing. To think, here I just went through hell on earth to save my life. And what is wrong with me? that I'm pouring poison down my throat. That was, that was a low point for me. That was a low point for me. And that was the point that I had to get to. Um, really, I look at it as, as being stripped from head to toe of all my armor on the outside, my physical looks, and the inside I had to break. And that's when I found not just being alcohol free, but freedom. And I'm still finding it. It's still a journey. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, and that is, you've described how it feels when you're at your lowest point stripped naked i haven't mm -hmm. heard it expressed like that yet i do recognize it exactly for what it is i recognize mm -hmm. that moment in rehab when i turned up in a in a shirt in which i had been painting that that hung on me and uh, i had I had I had renovated in the house and I had laid a floor, but I had laid it whilst I was drinking vodka in copious amounts. So oh my. The, the liquid nails, the glue that you put on to the hardwood was all over me. And that stuff, you can't get it off. You have to rip the hairs out. So for much of my rehab, I was actually ripping, ripping, stripping me naked, literally. Mm -hmm. Mm 
Mm-hmm. It was. Oh my God. And I've, it is such a beautiful description. Stripping naked. This point is a turning point for you. This point was something that you had to reach again because you, you had been there before. You to to a certain level, to a certain degree, because that's when you when you called your friend the minister. That's yes. you when you had over the time you had these kind of warning bells going. Mm-hmm. And now you find yourself again at the bottom of depression. Down and out, literally. Mm-hmm. Where did you get the strength from to move from there? What did you do to, what was the first tiny baby step that you took at that moment? Mm-hmm. I was, um, so now we're talking about only about a year ago, um, I was experiencing, um, aside from, you know, going through the drinking, trying to stop drinking. I mean, talk about hangovers after having been through chemo, radiation, all these surgeries. I mean, I was feeling very, very poorly, as you can imagine. I didn't have a shred of respect left for myself, um, that I had you know, fought for my life and then gone back to this, this poison. So I think for me, it was, uh, my higher power, I call him God, uh, was saying, look, if cancer didn't kill you, alcohol will, and you're going to have, I know you'd love to be able to do this on your own. I know you would, but you can't good try. High five for all the efforts, <laughs> but it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna to take. It. We have to believe we it. Really, Wrong. We really, we really do. Do it. <laughs> yes, yes. And I had muscled my way through so, so, so many things. Yeah. I just, I just felt very. <sighs> I just knew I had to do something drastic, and it was going to be more than just, just meetings and just. So I decided to, for the first time in my life, um, show myself a little bit of self-compassion and say, you know what, Victoria, you've been through a lot. (laughs) And why don't you give yourself a break? Why don't you give yourself the kindness that you would give to your best friend or even a stranger on the street? Why don't you give a little bit of that to yourself? So I committed myself to healing through many, many modalities. Um, after cancer, people don't, don't realize the emotional and physical fallout that we're left with. Um, so I decided that I would take on a multidimensional approach to this. And I committed to a three month, um, intensive outpatient program. I did uh, a yoga retreat. I did intense therapy, including things like uh, EMDR, you know, revisiting trauma. Um, I wrote a lot of letters to people, to my mother, to other people. Um, I wrote a love letter to myself. I uh, went to a therapist who specialized in helping survivors of cancer recover. And, uh, just again, woke up each day and prayed for, for just a little bit of love for myself that I so easily gave to others. And that has slowly grown into, um, having an actual love for myself. And so it's a lot easier to think what I pour poison down a stranger's throat. No. Why would I pour it down mine? I deserve better. Um, And that sort of has led me into the path of now um, hosting a podcast called After the Crisis. And 
becoming an integrative nutrition coach and now also uh, being in training to become a, a recovery coach. So that's where I am today. Beautiful. <laughs> what a beautiful journey. I'm so pleased for you. This last year must have been the most exciting thrill ride. I mean, any, any bloody Disneyland can just shut down compared with that for a ride that you have been on there. Well yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. And, and you know, what I, what I learned through cancer is that, you know, how do I put this? Things, things happen and they hurt, but if you go back and try to heal them, it's never going to hurt as much as it did the first time. So I had, I lost all of my hair. I had my breasts removed. I had reconstructive surgery. I had to go to physical therapy to learn to use my shoulders and arms. And I had, you know, neuropathy and all the things. And it hurt to go through the, through the process of recovering movement in my body and everything else. But none of it hurt as much as the actual removal of my breasts and waking up after surgery and feeling that pain. And so I view revisiting my past traumas and things that took me back into the cycle of drinking for so many years that it's going to hurt. It's going to be scary to look at. It's going to be scary to feel. Feelings are scary, but it, it's never as scary as when it was actually happening, when you're actually in that room. And your grandmother says that to you when you were that little girl coming home and wondering what kind of chaos is happening in your home that day. It's okay because like a good friend of mine, Lolly says, right now at this moment, you are safe. And so I would remind myself of that whenever I was getting ready to go back in to dig out my, the way one of my, one of my, uh, recovery coaches put it is you've been chopping off the branches of your trauma tree for a while, but you've got to go in now with a really big shovel, possibly a backhoe and unroot that thing. And so that's what we did because she's like, look, what are you going to do? Are you going to keep pruning this thing and let it keep growing deeper and deeper and deeper? Or are you just going to go in with the shovel and the backhoe and just get it out? And so I kind of took the approach that I did with cancer by any means necessary. You know, the doctor said to me, you've got to go through 16 chemos and radiation and, and, and surgeries. And we're going to, you know, take parts of your body. And oh, I was like, okay, by any means necessary. So I had to have that same approach when it came to oh, getting rid of this cancer in my body, this, this other thing that very much wanted to end me. So that has, uh, that's helped. You have described essentially the work that is necessary for anyone to heal, regardless if alcohol is involved or drugs mm -hmm. are involved. I think alcohol, drugs, whatever addiction we have is, is a sign of the underlying trauma not having been dealt with. And you have just nailed it and you have in the last five minutes you've touched upon so many beautiful modalities that you use to deal and recognize what is going on inside mm -hmm. first you have to recognize and sometimes it, that is the hardest thing you know you're hurting but you're not really sure why you are hurting and that is indeed where you need to work with a coach, where you need to work with a mentor, with a sponsor. And that mm -hmm. can be, if you're religious, that could be with a, uh, a uh, with your church. If, mm -hmm. if someone has gone through a similar journey and know what he is, how he is guiding you, that's fine. If you too can resolve your issues with prayer and all the hard work, Mm -hmm. If you are not believing in God in a Christian way, if you're Muslim or if you just are secular in your beliefs, mm -hmm. 
then you still need a system. You still need to address the underlying problems. And that's, that's where I wrote the book, The My Steps to Sobriety, where I take the, the 12 steps uh, in the traditional Christian sense and actually change them into a, a system where you use it to treat a failing business. And this mm -hmm. failing business is essentially your life. So yes, therefore, that's very well put. And in, and writing the letters, you need to do this, this the hard mm -hmm. yard. You need to sit down and address this resentment. I wrote mm -hmm. like you. I was asked by my counselor, by my caseworker, write that letter to that particular organization that wronged you so much. And that writ, write it all down. And boy, did I do that. Write, 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 write. Then wrote some more. And then I came very proud to the next session and said, here, look. It is all what they have done to me. And she looked over it and put it aside and said, brilliant. Now tell me about you. And I said, but, 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 them, them. No, 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 no. Oh, of course. You. <laughs> and it was brilliant. It was brilliant. We, was, we do, we, yes. <laughs> we do a lot of that. Yes. Tell me your problems so I can fix them and not think about my own. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I did a lot of that too. That's yes. And, and, um, I've likened it to, um, just, just as I, just as I approach my, my healing, physical, mental, spiritual from the vicious cancer treatment, I don't subscribe to one school of thought. I have a naturopath. I am part of a clinical trial in Philadelphia. I read all the journal articles that I can, I gather information from trusted sources and, and take it from there. And that's evolving and changing. And I look at uh, becoming substance free. And again, I love what you said about whatever that substance is. Uh, I refer to, to it on my podcast is what color is your shirt? Are you wearing, you know, what's your shirt say? Wine, yeah. cocaine, Xanax, exactly. TV, social media, love addiction. What's your shirt? Mm. What color is it? So these same things can apply. You, you know, I, I don't, I don't say, oh, you only do AA or you definitely don't do AA. I say, use all the tools, get all the things and rebuild. Your house is broken. You are broken down. Would you use only one hammer oh. and have to build it that rebuild it that way? No, Beautiful. you bring in all the tools mm -hmm. and you use them as they serve you and as they help you. And eventually you figure out more and more and more which tools are working best, which you don't really need anymore. And you just continue along the way. Brilliant. Right. That's exactly it. That's exactly uh -huh. it. And you could also add with that with regards to uh, I saw it as the analogy for the treatment of your underlying problems, but also for your cancer and for your health, the physical health. Mm -hmm. There is the Western medicine where there are tablets, injections, surgery, radiation. Yes. But there's also the Eastern medicine. There are yes. more natural therapies, which can be incredibly powerful. There is the and incredibly, attention. And it's an incredible marriage when you Correct. can get the two of them together. Is it not? My particular... Yes, it's brilliant. My particular cancer was very aggressive and very quick spreading. I did not have the luxury of time to go look into all the natural resources. I had to start chemotherapy and so I did. I put out the fire and now I use all the things, traditional, non-traditional, integrative. And today I'm all right. You know, we'll see what happens down the road. But, um, but again, I think that uh, whenever you whenever you stop being open to growth and change. And I think that's, that's when you need to take a look and say, I'm probably too much in my comfort zone. I need to scoot out of it a bit. <laughs> that's how Is that we... where your mountain retreat comes in? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So yeah. And then you just, as we say in America, keep on trucking. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Veronica, oh, this was this was such a beautiful 
interview because I recognized myself so much in your words. It was at times scary and spooky. Uh, and it is so beautiful to see you now on your journey uh, where you heal yourself and where you are a lifelong learner. And that's exactly how I would describe myself. A day where mm -hmm. I do not learn something new is a sad day for me. And yes. so it's beautiful yes. to, to find a like-minded spirit, but also by us listening and learning, we are also in a quite unique position to share those experiences because yes. we have been there, we have done it, we have vomited on the t-shirt and it is, we are very different people compared with maybe a young doctor who comes straight out of not such a bad household and everything mm -hmm. is smooth and he went through his journey as a doctor and now he has to talk to a drug addicted single mum who is uh, deeply depressed and yes. has seen healthy nutrition for most of her life um tricky i do not i do not envy this poor little doctor um mm -hmm. and that's that's i think where people like you and me come into the game where we hopefully can can by sharing our story infuse yes. others yes. to recognize they, they might have a problem and right. maybe tentatively tentatively funny word mm -hmm. um take that little baby step maybe Just in the dip right your toe in Mm -hmm. Dip your toe in. Just get curious. Just be and curious. It, and it probably doesn't hurt. It might be a bit cold, um, but it doesn't hurt to put the toe forward. Exactly. And then maybe take the next step. And it is by, by meeting people and contacting people like you. So if, if the interview today rings a bell, either through the podcast or the YouTube channel, and people want yes. to get hold of you, what people want to get in touch with you, yes. how can they do that? They can find me on the good old internet. I am, my website is victoriaenglishmartin.com. Uh, my podcast is After the Crisis. And I'm on, I have a, a free Facebook community called After the Crisis, where uh, we, we have some very thought-provoking conversations about lots of things. I'd invite you to join, join me there. Uh, Give me a shout out on my website. You can private message me. You can private message me on Facebook. Um, I'm on Instagram here and there. Uh, still, still wandering around the social media world a bit. But my website, VictoriaEnglishMartin.com, or my podcast, After the Crisis, uh, are, and that's available on all major platforms. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for all that. And guys, there will, be, there will be a link down there in uh, the YouTube channel in the uh, episode description as well as uh, as of next Friday. Uh, well, we'll see when we air this, this particular show on Friday the 19th. My podcast goes live and Victoria's, uh, this, this kind of interview will be there. So it's all exciting times. Thank you. Victoria, I need to ask you with regards to uh, your journey and at the moment, the way you empower your patients, because you're a woman, you have quite woman-specific issues and the podcast and those things are, are all sort of directed to women uh, with the breast cancer, with the trauma, etc. There will be some men out there um, who have equally uh, maybe an interest in that. Are men allowed to come in and knock on the door? Well, absolutely. And initially my podcast was going to be about life after breast cancer. But then I started to think that my scars are more visible on the outside because I had cancer. Uh, but we all carry scars on the inside. So my podcast is not actually centered around women. I do talk about breast cancer. I talk about cancer in general. Uh, but I talk to survivors of all crises. So um, whether it's domestic abuse, um, 
family issues, uh, health crises, economic. I, I actually would be very interested in interviewing a male or female about the impact of this COVID on uh, on on their their relationship with money uh, and fear around the economy, things like that. So we address all crises. Uh, so yes, men are definitely welcome. That's and good. in fact, I, I I'm always open to different different perspectives and you know as long as people are respectful and come from a place of 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 honor and uh authenticity i'm i love to talk to all sorts of people so absolutely guys come on over tell your friends don't be shy (laughs) and on that note i i last week in easter passed the gentleman who has just had breast cancer so yes, it, uh, it is breast cancer is not just uh, for the girls. It nope. can happen to us men too. Luckily, it is yes. a far lesser risk uh, yes. for us. We are plagued with the bloody prostate instead. Yes, but yeah, it is. Uh, it is what it is. So mm-hmm. not brilliant. Uh, <laughs> I'm so so pleased that we did Thank this you. interview today. Thank you so much for making it all happen, keeping in mind that this storm was potentially interfering with yes. our plans here. But I'm so pleased. I felt Thank called you. that it should happen today, so I'm glad that it did. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. I'm sure we will stay in touch. Look out Absolutely. for safe trip back home. Look yes. Out for yourself. Thank you. Bye. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye.